The financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with my co-host, Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Enterprises. Have there been any recent acquisitions or mergers uh, that uh, CTBK has helped Bronstein Enterprises with, Jonah? Yeah, I have not. Mm. Okay, so, uh, oh, Bronstein Enterprises Plus, what were we going with? What's the new branding? Bronstein Sports Plus. Bronstein Sports yeah. about, yes. Where, what did your uh, marketing team settle on? Bronstein Enterprises. I see. We're back to the beginning. Well, we will see what happens if there are any uh, mergers or acquisitions. As CTBK uh, specializes, they'll be happy to uh, walk you through some of those things. By the way, I should say, you know, I, I talk about ctbk in the promos at the beginning and the end of the uh, podcast but i had some one-on-one experience uh, a few days ago with some financial planning with uh, ctbk gave me some good advice lee enterprises is offering uh, some lump sum payments out of the pension plan from my time at the buffalo news so uh i ran that past ctbk and they gave me some great advice and uh they're good people. I mean, they know what they're doing. They brought up a bunch of stuff that I didn't even think of. I thought I had it all planned out. I gave them a bunch of bullet points as to what my questions were, what I was concerned with. And of course, you never know, because if I didn't need their help, then I wouldn't have asked. But all kinds of things to consider. So well, I'm looking for some for of that CTBK. guidance. What? Yeah, you well, I'm I'm looking for some of that guidance. You asked me at the top what advice I got from CTBK on the branding name for Bronstein Enterprises, and I haven't heard much feedback in that regard or from listeners and viewers them chiming in on what they like and, and maybe what would capture the audience best. So I'm open to feedback there and, and any guidance we can get from sponsorship. Well, it may behoove you uh, to reach out to CTBK as I did. You can't just lay it all out here on the podcast and expect to get a phone call from a specialist. Yeah, they well, have to I know if you're serious, serious Jonah. Much well, like these Miami Dolphins that we said were, we questioned their seriousness a few weeks ago. People need to know if you're serious about these mergers and acquisitions. You need. Well, that's where I was going. I, I'm not sure. I can take it seriously. It's your joke. It's your bit. You're the one that's been coming up with it the whole time. And then you're asking me serious questions about it, and sometimes I can. Uh, come up with a funny response and sometimes I can't. So not only am I looking for feedback on the actual name, but I need joke material from anybody watching and listening. They can help me come up with comebacks. Yeah, absolutely. And what, what also uh, we would like from those listening or watching on YouTube, please like us, subscribe, rate us, give us the thumbs up. However many stars you can muster, whatever platform you use in their grading system. Uh, please, uh, we beg of you, 
hit those buttons for us. It helps out with some of the things that we can do, especially on the YouTube side. The more subscribers you have, the more YouTube opens things up. They unthrottle some of the things that they allow creators to do. So uh, please uh, give us your uh, your love. We crave it. Uh, we need it. It sustains us. We uh, said a few weeks ago, uh, and we still may mean it, uh, that the Miami Dolphins were not a serious football team, and it's because they are kind of weird. And I'm not talking about what they do on the field, but what we were referring to a few weeks ago regarding their wanderlust at quarterback, pursuing Deshaun Watson, thinking that they had some package deal with Sean Payton and Tom Brady, tampering charges against ownership, losing draft picks, a head coach that doesn't seem to take too much seriously, but Sean Payton sure felt Mike McDaniel's shoe up his ass on Sunday. The Dolphins beat the Broncos 70 to 20. And I'll have to tell you, I, you know, I, I heard, I heard about the 70 points while I was in the post-game news conference for Sean McDermott, I leaned over. I, I had heard something about 70 points because at the end of the game, we don't know exactly what's going on in the NFL. We're, we're in a in an elevator going from the press box down to the locker rooms. Then you're in the tunnels. Sometimes you don't have good cell reception. And, um, you know, so I, I knew that the Dolphins were pouring it on, but I didn't know it was 70 points. So I hear the word 70, I lean over to Derek Boyko and I say, what happened? Derek Boyko, the PR uh, director for the, uh, for the bills. And he said, yeah, the, the Dolphins scored 70. So I knew that as I wrote my story on Terrell Bernard, I wrote my column. I did all the different things that I have to do for the athletic. I get in my car and head back to the hotel. And then I'm watching the highlights finally of what happened in all the earlier games. And I see on the ticker, a number that shocked me more than the 70 points. The dolphins had 726 yards. And for whatever reason, that number jarred me more than 70 points. The Cleveland Browns have surrendered only 491 yards on defense for the whole season. The dolphins rolled up 726. So Jonah, I don't know what your thoughts are as someone who grew up with that Dolphins-Bills rivalry and, uh, you know, that uh, I didn't. I'm fully aware of it, but what does it mean that the Dolphins are coming to town on Sunday against one of the best defenses in the NFL after having posted 70 on a professional football team? Yeah, I mean, it means a lot. I don't know if it is quite the same thing as like the 80s Dolphins with Dan Marino and their offense, which probably never had 700 yards and didn't score 70 points, but it was a different game back then. And that was, you know, a high octane best offense in the league. And the Dolphins probably have the claim to be the best offense in the league right now, the way they're playing, not just 70 points, but the how much speed they have on offense and how well Tua was playing, how good they were last year in the games when Tua was healthy, which included a win against the Bills a year ago. But I think, It doesn't seem like, you know, the rivalry type game that it used to be and the hate feel, the hate filled type rivalry that it was. But maybe that's just from the Bills perspective, because the Bills have gotten more of these wins lately. And I think 
Well, both teams uh, were irrelevant for so long, one or the other, or both at the same time for almost two decades. So we're so separated from that time. But the reason I mentioned that old rivalry um, sliver to this conversation is there's something about the Dolphins that just still make the Bills fans get really worked up. And I think that there's this period here since Josh Allen entered the NFL and became the Bills quarterback that the Bills have owned the Dolphins. Josh Allen owns the Dolphins. Well, the Bills barely beat Skylar Thompson in the playoffs at home last year in rough weather. That's the same coach, Mike McDaniel, down there who drew up some sort of offensive game plan that still scored a lot of points on a really good Bills team not that long ago. And now here he is with a healthy two attack of Aloha and different things going on. And I mean, I just, I, I guess just the whole dynamic of Bills Dolphins, it's back. It's a blockbuster matchup. Probably should be a prime time game, but I'm glad that it's at one o'clock because there still should be really good games at one o'clock on Sunday afternoon. But this is just such a heady matchup um, that that's why I kind of rolled everything all into one when I when I teed it up for you there, Jonah. Yeah, I, I guess I just say I think the Bills Dolphins rivalry is peculiar because if you go back far enough historically, but well, maybe if you go back far enough. The Bills were the better AFL franchise early on. But if you go into the 70s and 80s, the Dolphins won every game for decades upon decades. And it was a lot like the Bills Patriots situation where, you know, the Bills just couldn't win. And one the Bills win. went 0 for the 70s. They lost 20 right. straight games in the 1970s. It was bookended perfectly by the decade. Uh, of course, the Dolphins had the undefeated season. They were going to Super Bowls, Don Shula racking up wins and, you know, getting the record. Um, uh, for, for most wins all time by a coach, all that good stuff. So yeah, it was the bill. It was one-sided. So when the bills finally started winning, uh, I think it was more of a rivalry for bills fans than it was for dolphins fans for dolphin, for the dolphins, the jets were their rival back then. Right. I don't, I, I don't think the bills dolphins rivalry means anything close to what it used to. And is maybe the third biggest rivalry in the division for the bills right now. I think that's a fluid thing that changes year to year the Patriots rivalry is maybe not what it was when Tom Brady was the quarterback a few years ago but Bill Belichick like Bill Belichick feels like the Don Shula of this era in that regard and the Jets still feel like those games are more bitterly fought and a bigger rivalry in the moment but the Dolphins rivalry probably should be they played in the playoffs in the wild card round just last year and there was uh you know they split the series last year Josh Allen and the Bills had dominated for a few years before that but from the Dolphins' perspective, they lost these last two games that they played last year by a field goal with backup quarterbacks, and you feel like they might have an emotional edge in this game, even coming off this 70-point performance and riding high and probably number one in everybody's power rankings. They might, they are coming in as an underdog. It might feel like they are the underdog with a little more to play for, but I think and it's let's, a more I just want to pull because you just mentioned the phrase underdog, Jonah. For those listening who don't know, it's not Jonah just saying something in passing. The Dolphins are underdogs in this game. The Bills are favored by two and a half. Uh, it opened at two, and I think it's gone up a little bit. I think the money's coming in on Buffalo. Yeah, but that's probably the way it should be. If you look at it, it's about a pick 'em game with a home field advantage. The Bills are still one of the very best teams in the league, playing very well, especially on defense. And if they were playing this game in week one in a neutral field, I don't think you would favor the Dolphins. And now they are coming off this 
historic offensive performance and looked really, really good, especially on that side of the ball. But I still think it's premature to say the Dolphins are absolutely better than the Bills. And that's probably what makes this game so interesting is that we don't really know which team's better and we don't really know how this is going to play out. A lot of times you can look at a game like this and say the Bills are playing against at home against a younger quarterback, they're going to win, or the Dolphins are better than the Bills. The Bills, when they weren't as good a few years back, you kind of could pick their losses on Monday very easily. This is a game where Monday coming into Sunday, you know, there's a lot of intrigue because we don't know how it's going to play out. Don't know if it's yeah, going to be a high-scoring game or a defensive battle. I don't know what my uh, prediction is going to be. I'm not a big prediction guy, as you know, but I have to make one for the Channel 4 show, uh, Buffalo Kickoff Live. Uh, so around – 11:55 on channel four with the rest of the crew i'll be making my pick uh, i don't know which way i'm gonna go but uh, the dolphins clearly you know just a fascinating game they could have broken the record if they wanted to uh mike mcdaniel called off the dogs he had a lot of backups in the game late devon achan running back who came into the game with two touches on the season scored four touchdowns uh, against the Broncos, two of them in the fourth quarter. So it's not like this guy was the lead dog uh, that was just pounding the ball out. The, the Dolphins were just trying to finish the game. Robbie Chosen scored a touchdown in the fourth quarter, one catch for 68 yards. And you're saying Robbie Chosen, you may remember him as Robbie Anderson, formerly of the New York Jets and the Carolina Panthers. He changed his name. Um, but you, you're going to tell him to stop? Uh, when he has a chance to score a 68-yard touchdown with his only catch of the game. Um, you know, it's the Dolphins knelt it out at the end. They could have kicked the field goal and at least tied the NFL record for most points in the game. Um, I, I would like to say before we get too much further, and I didn't see the game. I didn't see all 60 minutes. I'll go back on NFL Plus and, and watch the game probably, uh, I don't know, maybe tonight. I mean, there's two games on Monday Night Football, um, maybe tomorrow just to get a better feel of the Dolphins game. But watching the highlights, the, the Broncos look like they just quit. And the, the Bills are not going to quit. You can fret over whether or not Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde have lost a step and whether or not they're going to be able to take great pursuit angles against people like Tyreek Hill and Raheem Mostert and, and those guys. So, okay, worry about that. But the Bills are not going to quit, and they're going to get after – to a tag of a low in a very aggressive way. He's had bad luck against the Bills in terms of staying uh, healthy for an entire game. And the Bills are one of the great pressure defenses in the NFL so far this season, despite not blitzing much. Uh, some great analytics out there regarding the Bills' reluctance to, uh, to blitz because they don't need to. Uh, the front four just getting the penetration and uh, and still making these splash plays like Terrell Bernard did with his historic day. A.J. Epinesa's pick six, uh, Tredavious White having a really good analytic season so far. The Bills' defense is legit. 35 points all season that the Bills have given up. Two on passing touchdowns, zero rushing touchdowns allowed. And by the way, one of those touchdowns was a miracle catch. Garrett Wilson had to bat, uh, bat the ball a couple of times to himself to beat Tredavious White in excellent coverage uh, in the Monday night opener. Um, and one of those touchdowns is a punt return in overtime. So right, of those 35 points, yeah. And in regulation is giving up less than 10 points a game. Yeah, so that's obviously where Las Vegas is looking at that. 
uh, at when they set the spread uh, at uh, minus two or minus two and a half for the Bills to be favored at home on Sunday. Um, I just want to point out we're doing this uh, right before the kickoff of the early game on Monday night football. Uh, but heading into these Monday night games, just another stat to put out there. 20 teams in the NFL have given up 70 or fewer points all season. Now that includes all four teams that are playing tonight, but if Tampa Bay gives up fewer than 36 points, they'll still come over. LA has 27 points to spare, Philadelphia 22 and Cincinnati 19, and they'll still be at 70 or under. So that's two thirds of the NFL has surrendered fewer points than the Dolphins scored in their one game against the Broncos. So clearly, uh, you know, a big anomaly. It hasn't happened since 1966. I don't think that we can expect the Dolphins to do this on a regular basis, and and particularly not against a defense uh, like the Bills. Oh, the floor is yours. I was talking there for a long time, Joan. I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't think. I mean, the score resets to zero, and the yard resets to zero. You know, the Dolphins are hot, and you think there could be a lot of momentum from the way they're playing offense, not just in this game, but the season in general, and how much of a rhythm they just seem to be with their quarterback and their players and the play calling and the coaching and everything. But they're not going to score 70 points, and the Bills' defense is not going to allow the same type of explosive plays. I mean, that that might be the game plan, to, to play over the top and to keep specifically keep some of that stuff from happening and the bills aren't going to quit in the second half as the Broncos might've, but you know, I, I mean, I think this is a big game, but there's, it does remind me of the opener in a little bit where it feels like there's a lot of hype going into it as if the division title will be decided in this game and the best team in the AFC and whoever's going to go on to the Super Bowl will be determined on a Sunday in September. Or in the case of the opener, that was a Monday night when that's, We've seen it so many times. That's not the case. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen through October, November, and December. And some of the flaws that we do not see with the Dolphins might start to appear or things, the course of the season and injuries and things will change what happens before these teams play again later in the season. All of that said, it is extremely important on paper. It looks that way for the Bills because if they lose this game, two games back of the Dolphins don't have the tiebreaker and you're looking at a team that, you know, looks as hot as can be and maybe, you know, how many games are they going to go before they lose to anybody, even though that's a contradiction of the two points I just made. It, it does seem like there's a lot on the line for the Bills. There's maybe just as much on the line for the Dolphins because they're not going to be leading the division anymore if they lose this game. But it's still only September and it's only week four and there's a lot of football left to be played. And either team can lose this game and still come out ahead at the end of the season or in a playoff matchup between the two teams. Yeah. It's uh it's interesting how this AFC East is shaking out unless the jets can somehow replace Zach Wilson's SIM card, count them out uh, because Zach Wilson still uh, does not look as though he's any more uh, likely to be a, long-term quarterback in the NFL, or at least a starting quarterback. Maybe he's one of those guys who can hang around as a backup until he's 38, but um, he just doesn't seem to have what it takes to cut it. Um, And the Jets are saying it's time uh, to just batten down the hatches. We're sticking with him. He's our quarterback. Joe Namath was uh, on the Michael K show earlier today and 
just let fly on Zach Wilson. He's done with Zach Wilson. It's time to move on from him. Uh, time to trade him, to which I say, for what? Uh, who wants him? Uh, but anyways, uh, here you have uh, a franchise that was banking so much on Aaron Rodgers that they needed to save some money in some certain places, and they felt that Aaron Rodgers was going to help them navigate a patchwork offensive line that just wasn't very good. Now, Zach Wilson behind that same line, not that great. So the New England Patriots seem to have some life. I don't know if Mac Jones is the answer. Probably not. At least that's just my sense. Um, so again, here it is September. Like you just said, it seems to be that it's the Dolphins versus the Bills at the top of the AFC East. Uh, and of course, uh, this game is a big one. I do think that it helps the Bills the way they flipped the schedule uh, in that the Dolphins usually host early in the season and then come up to Orchard Park later in the season. The NFL schedule makers flipped it around this year, perhaps due in part, or maybe it was just coincidental with what happened last year with teams practically dropping dead on the field uh, early in the season down in Miami Gardens. The Bills almost survived that game uh, with a victory, despite all their players uh, who were out with injury and dehydrated and taking IVs. But uh, they have the Dolphins, of course, this week, and then have them again in the regular season finale, week 18, either January 6th or January 7th, depending on what the schedule makers want to do for that game and how big it is. Uh, so uh, I think that uh, that game, uh, obviously, down in Miami Gardens. So that big that big heat advantage that the Dolphins have, uh, you can take that away. Then again, you could say that the plant, you know, the the frigid conditions, you can take that away from the Bills. But I, I think that the Bills would prefer it this way instead of vice versa. I think so. I, I think it's better for fans of both teams, and it just seems like logical that this should be the way. It's scheduled every single year. And that even if the NFL does it the other way, the Dolphins and the Bills should just get together and swap venues and play it this way no matter what. It should be like fixtures on the schedule, like college schedule. Yeah, so if you're a Bills fan, uh, this is your crack uh, to prove it against the Dolphins or else you're going to have to wait until the very end of the season in a game that could decide uh, the division and seeding and – and what happens in, in the postseason. And I think Russell Salvatore would agree with us. He likes having that party down in Miami in December, probably a lot more than in September. Yes, I would imagine so. Figure. Um, Jonah, what did you think of the Bills at Washington on Sunday uh, in the uh, tropical storm Ophelia remnants? Uh, they poured it on. Sorry for the pun there. I couldn't think of a better word on uh, on the fly there, but 37-3 uh, to three over the Commanders, a team that um, Commanders fans were excited about, perhaps going uh, undefeated through three games for the first time since Joe Gibbs was the head coach. Um, and Sam Howell just didn't look all that great, of course. Uh, he looked every bit the fifth-round pick, making his fourth NFL start after everybody thought uh, he was – uh, maybe a steal and uh, gonna gonna uh, nail down that spot on the on the franchise's depth chart for a long time but Sam Howell you know was overwhelmed uh, by the Bills defense uh, so many great things happening uh, for that uh, Bills defense Sean McDermott hell 
you know, we're not talking about whether or not it was a mistake for him to take over the play calling, not after three games anyway, not even after week one when the Bills did have their a couple of flaws, not being able to tackle Brees Hall, um, especially. But Sean McDermott has been calling uh, a borderline flawless defense through three games. Yeah, that that is my takeaway from the game in Washington, and it's an extension of the takeaway from the first three games of the season is just how good the defense has looked, and not just the numbers and the stats and the points allowed, but Sean McDermott calling the plays and taking over the play calling, um, the decision to let Tremaine Edmonds go and fill from within with Terrell Bernard, Christian Bentford starting a cornerback who, oh, by the way, was the player who did tackle Brees Hall and chase him down and his play right. good. And I think obscured any concern you might have that Kyrie Elam is not active and not taking that position. The defense as a whole, especially the back seven and the pass defense, has looked so good. And in this game, the defensive line without Von Miller putting that much pressure on the quarterback. And the Bills haven't played the greatest group of quarterbacks or the greatest offenses in the league. But through three weeks, the defense looks championship caliber. And if the defense continues to play near this level, um, I think that's a very good sign that the Bills are not only as good as they've been, but maybe even a little better than they were in the past year or two. And I think you made a great point, Will, with your angle and the story you wrote about uh, Terrell Bernard is that, you know, maybe there's some concerns with losing Tremaine Edmonds because of his size and his speed and his potential and some of the things that he was very good at. But through his career as a Bill, he didn't make a lot of big plays, a lot of big impact plays, interceptions and sacks, or finish those plays. They seemed to bounce off his hands or him to be just very close to making those plays. And through three games here, Terrell Bernard's shown that he can make those plays. And I remember, I, I, I can't remember exactly what it is, but I think he flashed that in a garbage time situation with the Bills last year. He seems to have a knack for the big play and getting his hands on the football. He's very fast and he can make things happen. And he looks like a young Matt Milano. And if the Bills have, even if he's not as good as Matt Milano, if the Bills have two Matt Milano-type players and able to make those plays along with their secondary, I think it makes him a more dynamic and a more dangerous defense than they've been over the last few years. He's so aggressive. He's just knifing through uh, would-be blockers, whether it's the offensive line or a running back in his face. What I mean, he is just so aggressive. And uh, I, I talked to his high school coach after the game last night, and I thought that I would catch him in a moment of awe in which he'd be like, oh, man, when I'm reading off the stats for Terrell Bernard, and he was silent. And uh, he told me he hadn't seen the game. So I thought, no, no, no reaction. Uh, and he was like, hey, that doesn't surprise me. That's the type of guy he is. And I'm looking back at Baylor. He didn't even have a big game. He had big games. He had a 20 tackle performance in the Sugar Bowl in which he was named uh, MVP uh, for Baylor in their win over Ole Miss. Um, I think he may have had a sack among one of those uh, uh, one of those 20 tackles. But to come up with an interception and a fumble recovery, something that he'd never done, I, you got to go back to high school. We weren't even sure if that were the case. Um, but I, I have a, let me just read off uh, his stats. They were historic. Uh, by the end of the first quarter, he'd done something that only two Bills players had done ever before. He had two sacks and an interception. And the only two who have ever done that were Cornelius Bennett and Jerry Hughes. Jerry Hughes did it three years ago, and he did all his in one quarter, too. It was a fourth quarter. Um, but that's it. 
in Bill's history. And then later in the game, Terrell Bernard added a fumble recovery. I think he should have had two fumble recoveries. One of the plays was whistled dead because of uh, forward progress, and that was something that couldn't be re- reviewed. But that ball got punched out, and um, and Bernard scooped that one up too. So he was pretty close to having two fumble recoveries. Um, but uh, I was able to look up these stats. The last time a player had two sacks, an interception, and a fumble recovery all in the same game was Coney Ely in Super Bowl 50. And then you got to go back all the way to 2007 to find the last time that it was done in a regular season game. That was Brian Urlacher. Uh, so nine people have ever done this, including in the postseason, uh, going back to at least 1960. So, I mean, a rare day when you talk about splash plays, which is what I wrote about. And uh, so any, I, I have to point this out to you. You mentioned Matt Milano. So Matt Milano doesn't like to do interviews. He just is media averse. Nice guy. He's just media averse. So I figure I'm going to talk to Matt Milano about Terrell Bernard. Teammates like to talk about teammates, especially people who are doing well. And so I walked up to Matt Milano at his locker stall yesterday, and he just he has this giggle. He's like, you know, <laughs> you know, I didn't do anything today. You don't need to interview me. And I said, uh, I want to talk to you about Terrell Bernard. And he's like, nah, I don't want to, I don't want to do an interview or whatever. And I said, uh, so I started reading off the stats and he says, oh yeah, I heard that stat first time since Brian Urlacher, crazy, whatever. He gave me a quote, but then I said, what is it? What did people maybe miss about Terrell Bernard as a potential replacement for Tremaine Edmonds? Because this was a storyline all summer in which, you know, how, how were the bills going to replace Terrell Edmonds? And Milano looks at me like I have five heads. And he was like, what? That was a story. That wasn't a, well, a story for who? Which is a classic locker room response to a media member. Like they knew, we didn't know. And I said, well, it was one of the major storylines throughout the entire summer as to what you got, what was going to happen at your number two corner spot and middle linebacker. And he was just like, looking at me again, like just a blank stare, like how ridiculous was it that we would question how they were going to, you know, he was like, you know, the whole, uh, that wasn't ever a storyline for us. And uh, so anyways, it's the game gamesmanship that gets played, but it would have been nice for Matt Milano (laughs) to tell me a little bit about what it's like to play alongside Terrell Bernard. But there are some guys who are, who are, uh, there's some there's some peculiar media personalities um, in this Bill's locker room, um, but and Matt Milano's one of them. And I thought I thought he'd be happy to talk about Terrell Bernard. And uh, no, he he just wanted out of that. He just wanted out of there. I'll be quick here because I don't think we need to relitigate the Bills middle linebacker competition from training camp, but. Von Miller kind of did the same thing talking about Terrell Dodson and wondering why anybody was asking why there was a middle linebacker competition and it was his job and, you know, nothing. Right. Oh, I forgot about that. I should have kept, I I forgot it. That should have been in my column. Yeah. Von Miller essentially gave the job to Terrell Dodson in training camp. Yeah. And the bills were rotating four different players at that position at one point. And uh, Terrell Bernard was playing a little bit outside sometimes with the second team or whatever. So you weren't so sure that the bills had committed even playing him in the middle. And with his injury, I mean, now it looks like an easy decision. A third-round pick last year, and look at all this talent and, and 
how could you ever not see that coming? But if it was so obvious, the Bills would have made Terrell Bernard the starting middle linebacker in minicamp, and it wouldn't have been this, you know, four-way competition and intriguing situation all the way up to the cutdown day of the season. In fact, after Terrell Bernard was named the opening day starter, people thought it was going to be temporary because they signed Christian Kirksey, the 10th-year NFL veteran. Right. And put him on the practice squad with the assumption that it's he's just there until he learns the defense, he's going to learn the calls, and then he's going to be ready to go because Bernard can't possibly be our middle linebacker. He's not big enough. Um, well, Kirksey retired last week, maybe because he got a load of, of Terrell Bernard in practice for four weeks and was like, look, I'm not going to beat out this guy. Uh, it's time for me to retire. Um, but I just think it's interesting that even after Bernard was named the opening day starter, there was a belief that that's not real. It's that's just to get us. That's just to get us. I'm speaking us. I'm saying in terms of you know a Bills fan or the you know there was a that was a pretty common thought out there is that nobody won the job. Kirksey's here to 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 hold down the fort. I do want to say, though, let me read off these stats. And, and um, these are stats that get quoted and, and repeated quite a bit. This is Terrell Bernard's stat line. Jonah, see if you can guess what my pet peeve on this is. Uh, he had seven tackles, two sacks, two tackles for loss, two quarterback hits, an interception, and a pass defensed. Is it the repetition that some of those things are counted twice? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So he had two sacks, two quarterback hits. That's what a, you get a you get a quarterback hit for a sack, and a tackle for a loss. So he had, uh, and and an interception is also a pass defensed. So I know that sometimes people want to make it look, you know, like he's his stat line is even better. I mean, you don't need to worry about it. I think the the two set. Uh, by the way, led the Bills in tackles each game so far. Now, he's not racking up 12 or 14 like Tremaine Edmonds did, but he's in the 6-9 to nine area, I think. I'd, I'd have to go back and see what it was against the Jets, but he has led the Bills in tackles every week uh, so far. Uh, he had a game-high 7. Uh, I should say team-high 7 because uh, somebody for the Commanders had 13, so I can't say game-high, but a team-high 7. Um, so many so many players uh, had uh, excellent games, you know, uh, you you lose you lose sight of what's going on in the interior defensive line, I think, because of all these splash plays. But Ed Oliver uh, and Daquan Jones each had a sack and a half. Um, Jones with five tackles, which is pretty healthy for a defensive tackle. Ed Oliver had four. Um, just a, a nice day all around for the uh, for the Bills defense. Daquan Jones, by the way, I saw I retweeted Alex Brasky. He he caught note of it that uh, Daquan Jones is starting to feel it a little bit on social media in terms of not getting the credit. You know, Ed Oliver, you know, having a sack and a half day, got some sort of some sort of uh, plaudit from the Bills uh, PR account. And he was like, hey, what about me? And then NFL Network or NFL Next Gen Stats, I think it was, had a stat on pressures in which he was on the list, but he was in the fine print because they ran out of room but he was tied with somebody else who got full credit on the, on the graphic. And he's like, Hey, why, why, why do I get the fine print? What about me? He's had a pretty good, pretty good season so far. 
I mean, it's only three games, but Daquan Jones has been an underrated addition to the defensive line. Uh, Jonah, I want to shift year. over. Yeah. No, you, no, last Bill's thoughts. I just wanted to no, no, get over to the saying, Sabres. I think he was an important player last year, and I'm forgetting the exact details, but injuries, both games he missed and I think games he played hurt. I think that made a difference in some of the Bills' defensive performance when he wasn't at his best uh, in the second half of last season. Right. But when you have A.J. Epineza with a pick six and all this other stuff, Tredavious White with a pick and Micah Hyde with a pick, both a couple of acrobatic plays, I thought. Leonard Floyd Uh, with sacks on back-to-back plays. That signing's looking to be very fruitful for the Bills. I thought this, and I didn't need to ask him about it, but Hyde didn't need to jump on his interception. That could have been a pick six. Uh, He jumped. I think he just wanted to make sure he got it. Maybe it was because of the wet conditions, but that that could have been a pick six also. Um, uh, Tredavious White, his interception in the end zone. So that was a that was to snuff a a drive deep into Bill's territory. Um, Sabers preseason uh, home opener is tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. Okay, Tuesday night. Um, You've been out there. What what are your thoughts on what you've seen so far? And, and and this is coming from somebody who's covered his share of NHL training camps. They're a bit of a mess in terms of what to look at. You got players all over the place. Uh, you got uh, an you got sometimes you got overcrowding on the rink. You got guys going on multiple rinks. They're playing shinny, going uh, you know um, sideline to sideline a little bit. But anyway, what what's just been your general takeaway from what you've seen at Sabres camp so far? Well, to that point, the preseason rosters are split in half and the lines and the defensive pairs aren't exactly what you might see in the regular season. So you can't make exact observations, maybe even less so than football uh, when you're watching practice and when you're watching preseason games about things that are going to happen in the lineup and on the roster in the regular season. And I think it was more, if you don't know what you're seeing, uh, it was more interesting what we were hearing coming out of the Sabres in the first round of interviews with Kevin Adams and Don Granado and key players on the team coming out of the first couple practices. And it's a different vein of confidence. Uh, this is a team that did not make the playoffs last year and obviously hasn't made the playoffs in an NHL record 12 seasons, but carrying themselves as if they are a team that's going to be in the playoffs. And when you start to ask, you know, are the expectations for this team to win the playoffs? Uh, the talk quickly goes to winning the Stanley Cup. And that might be premature, and it, it could be a bit of overconfidence for the team to already assume that it's a playoff team with the other good teams in their division and the conference. But it is the type of confidence you want to have from this team, and I think it shows a different level of maturity from the older players, Kyle Poso and the free agent signings that they brought in, to the younger players getting older, that they've been in the league long enough and they know how close they were last year and they just seem to know that they're a team that's going to win more often than they lose and be in the playoffs by virtue of just being one of the better teams in the NHL, whether it plays out exactly that Adding way. Adding a guy like know. Eric Johnson. Exactly. And Eric Johnson coming in because he sensed how good the other players were. And he might make a difference, but it's not like he's coming in to lift up the talent level. He's kind of riding along with maybe a next wave team. And players like Rasmus Dahlin, and Tage Thompson and Alex Tuck, they seem to have this confidence carrying themselves as if they are already a playoff team when they're not yet at that level yet. Um, and saying that makes it sound like that could be a dangerous thing, but it seems like this team at this moment 
where they are, that seems to be something that's in their favor right now. What's been your sense of Eric Johnson? Have you had a chance to chat with him or to hear talk to other people about what he's uh, what his presence has has been? Well, I was on the Zoom call when they signed him, and then he was. We were waiting for him to come off practice and talk on the first day, and we were waiting and waiting and waiting. About an hour later, we all left before Eric Johnson came to the media room, and then he spoke the next oh, day, yeah. and I wasn't there, so I haven't gotten you know a direct interaction with him yet. And my my main impression I is have a uh, spider know, right in my eye, and let me get him. Oh, now he, he sees me coming after him. Now he's climbing. Oh, there's an Easter egg for those who may be watching on YouTube. I don't think I got him. He'll be back. Sorry. So I think the biggest impression with Eric Johnson is how old he is because, you know, he had the length of treatment required after his first practice at training camp was so long that, you know, everybody gave up on waiting around to interview him. And, you know, one of the more, you know, cute, funny lines to come out of the first day of training camp was Rasmus Dahlin saying that Eric Johnson told him he needed to buy a sauna for his house. And Rasmus said, you know, whatever you say. And so not to pick on him for being an older player, but it does seem like he's bringing a, a veteran approach and a lot of, you know, just old guy knowledge into the locker room and onto the team. And that can help them on the ice and maybe even more so off the ice. And Connor Clifton being a player who's not quite as old, but experienced and been around and been on winning teams seems to be bringing a similar element to that. And you add that with Kyle Oposo and Zemgis Gergensen. They don't have Craig Anderson, although he was there at the first practice. So I don't know. I haven't seen the numbers that they're going to be the youngest team in the league again this year. They probably won't, but they seem to be just an older, wiser team than they were a year ago in a lot of different ways. So much rides on the young goaltender, Devin Levi. Um, maybe he's the real deal or maybe he has a slow start and he gets to be the real deal in a year or two. I mean, the, the Sabres have been so slow with their other goaltenders saying, oh, they need seasoning. They need seasoning more time in Rochester. And now here's Devin Levi and they're ready to go full bore with him. Um, Risky, not risky. Well, I think you could call Devin Levi a player who seems wise beyond his years to sort of fit with the theme of this conversation. And when before Devin Levi signed, when he first signed with the Sabres, and he was practicing and there were some questions about how many games he would play when his first start would come and will he be starting the next, will he be going to Rochester last season? I think it would, you would think it would be risky for the Sabres to be looking at him to be the number one goalie coming into the season. But the way he played down the stretch, the number of games they trusted him to play down the stretch and start uh, towards the end when they were making a playoff push. And just the way he talks and the way he carries himself, there probably will be some growing pains and, you know, technically will still be his rookie season and rookie goaltender mistakes. But it does feel like there's going to be a lot less than you might want to believe from a young player that's in his first season and it sort of does seem like maybe he's not going to win the Vezina, but he's going to be more of a veteran goalie presence than they should be getting from a rookie goaltender. Yeah. The, the Sabres have made some mistakes with their goaltending in recent years, uh, maybe letting a really good one get away. Now, of course the Boston Bruins are a better team and he has 
better support around him, uh, banking on one guy over the other, leaving one guy down, bringing another guy up, not signing the veteran uh, or a different veteran and, and uh, deciding Craig Anderson uh, was going to fill that role. It was uh, obviously a frustrating season from a goaltending analysis standpoint, at least from Sabres fans, I thought, uh, regarding all of the what ifs and had the goaltending been better last year, where things may be with the organization. Do you think, um, do you think it was a missed op- Well, of course it was a missed opportunity to not make the playoffs last year. We saw what the Florida Panthers were able to do getting in as the eighth seed, but do you think that the Sabres would be further along had they tasted the playoffs last season? Now, keeping in mind that uh, to do that, maybe they would have needed to bring on a little extra free agent help. Maybe they're saddled with a contract, or maybe they get buyers at the at the trade deadline, even for a rental. But having given up the asset, do you think they're in better? I, I'm, there's a lot that goes into what would have gotten them that push to get them over the hump, whether it be dating back a year ago, heading into the season, or in the in the off season of 2022, uh, or the trade deadline, or whatever. Yeah, I think it probably would have given them even more belief that they're a playoff team and we'd be talking about a team that, assuming they didn't go very far in the playoffs that they made it last year, would be talking about now we got to win around. Now we need to, you know, contend for the Stanley Cup and we, we ended that drought. So, and it would have taken this because if the Sabres do go through losing streaks this season and are out of the playoff picture at any point, all of that talk about a drought and how many years it's been since they've made the playoffs is going to come back and, way on their shoulders a little bit. And I think it also would make a big difference when they do get to the playoffs, having that playoff experience that they did not get last year. But at the same time, the development of this team, and especially the younger players and where they're going, I don't think it was any sort of missed opportunity. They're still on schedule. You know, last year wasn't really supposed to be the breakthrough year. I think it's this year is the year they break into the playoffs. And probably are still maybe a year away from being. Yeah, but just because it wasn't supposed to, isn't that a bit of a rationalization of why it was okay? I mean, just because it wasn't supposed to be a playoff season. But, you know, that was. I don't, I don't, I just don't understand why people are wringing their hands that they didn't make the playoffs last year, aside from wanting to see the playoff games and how fun that would have been. I don't think that they took any step backward by not winning. No, I would agree. I didn't know if maybe, you know. Maybe there's something to be said for the experience of having some playoff uh, exposure. Uh, yeah, no, I don't think that they are stunted or no, they didn't certainly didn't regress in any kind of way from a organizational development standpoint. At least I, I don't think I don't think they're going to suffer this year for not having uh, gotten into the postseason. And well, and that was like the. And you know, there's the no post- window at play. It's not like some player got, we wasted so-and-so. Well, it's not like Josh Allen only gets so many kicks at the can. Uh, you know, these are this team is so young that the window is is there. Uh, now is the window. But, yeah, it's not like you wasted somebody's prime season um, because, uh, because they're pa- getting past their prime. Yeah, I, I don't think that anything was lost by not making the playoffs last year. There was a big kind of theme of the postseason press conference with more so Kevin Adams, but a little bit with Don Granado. And there were some tough questions about, did this team 
you know, miss an opportunity and they pushed back on that and said that, you know, that they didn't think it was a, you know, sorrowful moment that the Sabres came right. one win away. It was, it, I guess that's, that's the debate there. Did they lose because they didn't have, you know, was they have won too many losses and that kept them out of the playoffs or did they have almost as many wins to make the playoffs? And I think that's something that was not celebrated, but kind of a proud stepping stone that the team was in position to just almost make the playoffs. And one more win would have got them in instead of with a veteran team or a team that had already been in the playoffs and you missed by one game, you're lamenting that one point that you didn't get in the loss and sliding backwards into the offseason. It seems like even though the Sabres didn't make the playoffs, what they did last year was a stepping stone towards whatever they might do this year. Yeah, when I said the window, I guess it was uh, uh, almost like a subconscious response that when you talk window in the bills, you have to mention Josh Allen's name. That's not, that wasn't the best example. It would be more like there was no Jordan Poyer, Micah Hyde, Stefan Diggs. There's no crew of, like those players who are getting a little, they're closer to retirement than they are their prime. Uh, or I shouldn't say the prime, but they're, they're, uh, they're, uh, they're uh, their, their rookie hood. Um, so but that's yeah. exactly what Kevin Adams said. Our window's open. And that wasn't the type of thing that him or Don Granado said really at any point last year. I think people wanted to hear them say that and, and act that way at the trade deadline. And that wasn't the case. And even in free agency, they did add some key pieces, but they didn't make the big go for it move. Like this is our year to contend, but they are using some of that language and rhetoric and talk and belief that, they are ready to contend with the moves that they've made, and they still might have a big trade or a big signing a year from now able to add on to that roster when the, when the timing's right. Jonah, before we wrap up, I want to touch on uh, UB and uh, what happened with them Saturday against Louisiana. And uh, I was in D.C. on Saturday, and let's just say that uh, – uh, the folks where I was having dinner uh, weren't going to change the channel from Oregon, Colorado, or Ohio State, Notre Dame uh, to go searching for the Bulls versus the Raging Cajuns. So uh, your thoughts on on UB and, and uh, where they are now on the verge of opening up uh, Mid-American Conference play this weekend against Akron? Well, UB's 0-4 for the first time since 2005. And in the 25 years since they went up to Division One AA, this is only the second time they've been 0-4 in non-conference, which some of that's because there were seasons when they only played three non-conference games. But they usually have not had a non-conference performance like this. And they're, you know, the third from the bottom in the country in total defense and yards per play. And rushing defense is the second worst in the country. They're giving up 44 points a game and well over 500 yards per game. And with a lot of veterans and experienced players on defense and returning starters and Moling was being a defensive coach who was hired to be the defensive coordinator at Michigan before coming over to Buffalo. So there's some questions about how can the defense be this bad when it's supposed to be the coach's specialty. And there's, there's chatter on UB Twitter, if you believe that's a thing. And from various accounts that I've heard that are very UB centric about, you know, how, Molinguist should be fired or Molinguist on the hot seat. How many more losses will it take? I don't think – I think it's very premature to think anything's imminent, and I don't think 
UB athletic director Mark Allnett or really anybody at UB is close to thinking that way quite yet. And it's the big reason for that is because they haven't played any MAC games yet. They come into this MAC opener against an Akron team that's only won three MAC games over the past four seasons and six games total, even though they almost just beat Indiana. And it isn't that unfathomable that UB could do the same thing they did last year, which was when they started 0 3 and then won five games in a row. I don't know if they're going to win the next five, but they have a chance to win four or five, maybe even six MAC games and be in contention for a division title and a MAC championship and a bowl game. It's a tough road now. They have to win six of the eight MAC games just to be bowl eligible, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that they could still be that team if they get a little bit better on defense and get some momentum from winning some of these games. And while I don't know if they'll get all the way to six wins and Mac East title, I do like their chances a lot of winning one, two, maybe even three games in a row here and turning around the narrative of the season and quieting any speculation that there might be a coaching change. What would it take for the seat to get hot from Mo Linguist? Well, I'd say losing to Akron I don't think there's going to be a coaching change midseason. I don't think there's an obvious interim coach candidate. I think Mark Allnett believes strongly in Mo Linguist and the recruiting classes he's had and the culture he's set. And this is Mo Linguist's team with younger coordinators. I think you're, you're all in with Maurice Linguist as the coach of this team for this season and probably, I think, going forward. But every win, every 0 for, 0 for 5, 0 for 6, 0 for 7, if it possibly gets to that, I think does start to heat up any coach's seat. And I think that that's the question I kind of ask myself. If they have only 1, 2, or they're not going to go 0 and 12, but if they have a 0, 1, 2, 3 win season, does that put Mo Linguist's job in jeopardy at the end of the season? I don't know. you got to see how that plays out. I think there's a lot of blowout losses, and it looks like they're really just outclassed in Mac play. But that hasn't been – they have an 8-8 eight eight record in MAC games over the past two seasons, and there's been some close losses that they probably should have won or had leads in. I, I think they need wins. They need wins to get this team going and, and to maybe inspire more confidence in the coach from the fan base. But I don't think it'll take too many. Like, I don't think a 4-8 and eight season puts anybody's job in jeopardy except maybe, you know, a coordinator or something. Do you want anything else we need to get to before we wrap up? I don't, I don't know. College basketball practices started today and tomorrow, so we're already into that season. Hockey season. Midnight uh, midnight Madness, or what do they call it? It used to be a big event. Did anybody do Midnight uh, Not that I'm night? aware of. I, I think it happens in some places around the country, but nobody that I'm aware of did that. And the calendar's a little different. Not everybody that what it's called? Was that what it's called? Midnight yeah, Madness midnight or Madness Midnight? On October 15th. Yeah. Now they just kind of start with practices, and I think some programs might do a big Friday night event or something during the preseason, but that midnight practice on October 15th when everybody's allowed to start, it kind of isn't a thing anymore that I'm aware of. They should they should change it from midnight madness if they want to get the fans involved to transfer portal madness. And uh, there is there a date when it opens? Is the transfer portal always open? There are windows, but it does seem like players come and go in and out of the portal at all times. And, you know, but this is the start of the season. Most of the transfers have happened already. Anybody who leaves a team and goes to transfer now would be transferring for the following season. So the rosters are as settled as they'll ever be right now in the beginning of preseason. 
All right, Jonah. Well, let's see if we can get you a merger and or acquisition before we podcast again. Hopefully by the end of the week, this could be a two for week. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm shooting for it. Uh, we got to get back uh, to uh, more bills and uh, UB uh, preview for the Akron game. Uh, there's going to be plenty more to discuss uh, for the Bills and Dolphins. And uh, so please check it out. Keep an eye out for uh, another edition of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants, by the end of the week. And uh, thank you for listening and watching. And again, please like it, subscribe to it, rate it, do what you got to do. I'm grateful. CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business and our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services by offering a wide array of consulting and outsourced solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716-630-2400. 716-630-2400 to learn how CTBK's one-team approach can work for you. Thank you.